This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Botox Cosmetic. Out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So, the only thing left to say is, you win. Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too, so that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18+, plus. rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Right, so we've got another edition of uh, my Chelsea, and uh, this week we've got the uh, the lovely Tim Rolls, great friend of mine, of course, and colleague uh, in the past. Of course, those of you who don't know Tim, which I would find remarkable, that would be the case. But Tim is becoming something of an accomplished uh, Chelsea author, having written the fantastic book on Chelsea in the sixties, Dynamo- Diamonds, Dynamos, and Devils, on Tommy. Doherty's wonderful six-year reign as Chelsea manager. He's also just done Stamford Bridge is Falling Down, which uh, me and Jonathan have been leaning very heavily on on the early part of our 50 Years of Chelsea series. Of course, Tim was on that. Uh, He's been a CFC UK writer for a long, long time. And of course, he was the first chairman of the Chelsea Supporters Trust. So in his spare time, Tim actually does have a life, but uh, a lot of it does revolve around Chelsea. Tim, as always, a delight to see and uh, speak to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Very happy to do it. Always a pleasure. I'm a, I mean, viewers won't be able to see this because, of course, they're only going to hear it. But I'm, I'm much enamoured of your your Chelsea shirt that you're wearing. Is that well, is that yeah, a fifties one? It's a fifties one. I picked it up years and years. I never buy, never buy stuff. Never go to the mega store. Picked this up on eBay years back for, for not a lot. I'm not even sure it's a, an official club one, but it, it does the job. Isn't yeah, it? brilliant. I love it. Anyway. Um, now, I mean, I know for a fact that you were, you're not old enough to have been going in the 50s, but, I mean, how did you become a Chelsea fan? Right, well, we moved to Camberley when I was nine in 1966, and there was a boy in my class called Paul McKinnon, and his dad ran a sort of boys' football team, but he also ran coaches for Chelsea. Now, Camberley was a, a London overspill town, or the estate where they lived was, and we had like Kingston Road, Carshalton Road, Wimbledon Road, Serbson Road, all of these. And a lot of the people who moved there in the in the fifties were Chelsea fans. So John, John McKinnon ran coach three or four times a year to Chelsea. Few parents and mainly nine and ten year old school kids, which these days the, the numbers literally they'd be, they'd be four adults and thirty 
Lots Road. And we just sort of walked to the ground. And after we, we'd stand with the adults if we wanted to. And afterwards, we'd find our way back to Lots Road. Um, so he ran three or four of these a year. And I went on those from, I guess, 1967 till, till the early 70s. And Paul, funnily enough, he was a very good footballer. He played for Blackburn. He played for Melmo. And he played for Sutton United in the FA Cup when they beat Coventry in 1989. Remember and Paul was well. a Chelsea. I'm sure he'd have loved to have played for Chelsea, but he was he was a very good player. And his dad was one of these guys who just made things happen. He ran kids' football teams and say ran coaches. When I was at primary school, he fundraised and built a, an outdoor swimming pool at our primary school. He's one of these sort of people that, that made things happen. So I owe him a lot. And I think a lot of people who went on those coaches' Probably most of them don't go now, but I think that sort of got their 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 initial interest in Chelsea, if you like. So, so go on. Oh, go on. No, no, I was going to say, so that's where it came from. I didn't go regularly until I was 19 uh, when I left home and went to college and met Martin Horn, who some of your listeners will, will have met at the stall, also known as a curator. And, and Hugh Mombert and Graham Ellis. So I still go with go, go with the three of them sort of 44 years later. Um, but when I lived in Camberley, basically I didn't have the money to go to, to every game. So I went to those games where uh, John ran a coach. And also my dad would take us to Chelsea Man United. I have to say it wasn't to watch Chelsea. It's because he fancied watching George Best. That was the reason. And he wasn't the only person at those games that was there. Primarily to watch George Best, you know. But it, but it was a, a very it was a very different time then. I mean, you know, football was less tribal in a in a in a way then. I think it, it was a very very different world, wasn't it? It, it was, and, and loads of people did that. And you hear stories about people going to Fulham one week and and, and QPR the next. And certainly, um, there was a writer, John Moynihan, who wrote a about the fact that he watched Fulham one week and Chelsea the next in the early 60s. I think there are probably, you know, thousands of people did that. And, and I think it, it got more tribal, I think, in the in the late 60s. And I haven't heard Danny's piece, but I'm sure he, he, he talks about that because he was one of the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tribal, tribal... He was a tribal chieftain, I think. He was a tribal chieftain. I've seen him <laughs> described in the newspaper as, as a cheerleader. And I think that probably undersells his... Uh, undersells him but it, it was it, it was different days and you know I, I i used to go and watch all the shot as a kid lots of the people on that estate because they were the local team yeah. and same as people now who can't afford to go to chelsea who can't get to chelsea might go and watch i don't know sutton united or hampton and richmond or something it's a similar similar sort of thing the difference then was games weren't all ticket I mean, the, the seats might sell out in advance for big games but you could always get in if you got there early enough um, which is why, you know, my dad would get us there at 12 o'clock for games against Manchester United and the gates would close at, uh, at, at half past one. But it, it, it was different. There was, when I first went, you know, there was the shed. We stood up the shed end. We didn't know where we were going. We were we were 10. Um, but it was, it, it, it was a very different ground. You could change ends at half time until 1969. So Chelsea were kicking one way, you could stop. Or if you were that way inclined you could go up the other ends to, to have a go with opposing supporters but a lot of people used to change ends as, as, as the team did at half time you could go under the old um under the old east stand and i'm sure jonathan kid will remember that and i'm sure other other of your older 
older listeners will remember that as well. Indeed. Fascinating times. And uh, I mean, you know, standing uh, at a terrace, to, you know, getting in early in the terraces to make sure you could get somewhere to, to stand was a bit of a rites of passage, wasn't it then? Something that we've sadly lost from the game now, I think. So anyway, that uh, hopefully takes us quite nicely to your first game, Tim, which I know was in the 60s, but tell us about it. Right. First game was Stoke City at home, September 1967. It was actually, though we obviously didn't know at the time, about three weeks before Dommy Doherty left the club. Now, Stoke had a reputation for physicality. Um, even back then? Alan Bloor, even back then, Eric Steeles, Alan Bloor, Calvin Palmer. These were these were physical players. Um, I've read match reports recently of the game. It was a tall draw and Tamlin got a penalty and Aussie scored a great goal. So it sounds like it was an exciting game. But when you realise that Stoke made 15 back passes in the last 10 minutes to Gordon Banks to ensure a draw, and lots of Chelsea, there was a lot of booing and a lot of Chelsea fans left before the end. And it got one star out of five in the Daily Express <laughs> for entertainment. I mean, of course, I didn't know, I had no reference point to, to compare it against because the only live games I'd seen up to then were cup finals on television. So, you know, um, it seemed exciting to me. And, and you know, there were, there were only 26,000 there. But, you know, you, there was singing. I, I remember that. I remember the crush to get out afterwards. So, you know, it, it was an exciting moment, but it wasn't, by all accounts, an exciting game. And I think we were at the height then of, um, you know, defensive football was really coming in after the 66 World Cup. Wingers weren't trusted. Stoke, I mean, later Stoke had Alan Hudson, Jeff Sammons and, and, and were more expansive under Tony Waddington sort of five, six years later. But this really was a very, very physical, very dour team. And Osgood was only just coming back. I think it was about his fifth game after he'd come back after breaking his leg. So he wasn't uh, he wasn't quite he wasn't quite there yet. And we hadn't um, you know Doherty was in it was yeah as I say three weeks before Doherty went. The team were in the bottom six he bought Colin Waldron centre half over the summer that was the first game he was dropped for never played again um I think Sexton sold him more or less uh, straight away so the club was was in turmoil of course again I didn't really realize this I mean you you don't I think if you were if you'd been going for 20 years you'd realize that all wasn't well um Doherty was criticizing the chairman in the paper the chairman Charles Pratt was criticizing Doherty in the paper so it wasn't going to last, but you're 10. You, you don't know these things. All you know is you saw four goals and, and, and enjoyed yourself, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, 10 is, is quite young. I mean, I was about 11 when I went to my first match. And, you know, the football passed me by, to be honest. It was, it was, you know, I was more excited by being there and what was around, you know, as you do. I mean, do you remember where you sat or stood, more to the point? Well, we stood, yeah. What, what we, we later knew was the tea bar We came, we went in the... Um, the shed end, and there was a boys' entrance, sort of behind, below the tea bar. That entrance there, the bottle entrance, I think, was the was a, a boys' entrance. We went in that, and we stood. We we didn't we didn't go under the main bit of the shed. I I, I remember that, but I was we we weren't with the main the main party for whatever reason. It was me and a boy. Heaven knows what happened to him. Called Leslie Boswell. We stood together, um, and I'm still amazed that we found the coach, which was off up Lots Road, because that would have involved coming out walking down to the King's Road, walking over the bridge at the King's Road, 
and then down Lots Road. And we were 10 and I'd never been to London before. Wow. <laughs> it just wouldn't be allowed to happen these days. It, you know? it, it, exactly. I mean, it is bizarre. I mean, the, uh, you know, as people will know who've listened to my edition of this, that, you know, my, my first match wasn't even a Chelsea match, but it was the first time, Stamford Bridge was the first time, I think, that I went to London, which is remarkable yeah. when you think about it now. But there you go. Um now, you've got some interesting selections for favourite players go- growing up. I'm not going to tell people who they are. I'm going to let you do that. Right. Well, the first one would be um, Charlie Cook. And throughout this, you'll, you'll get a theme that I like width and I like flair and I like players. Never mind the quality, feel the width, Tim. Absolutely. And I think Cook, I mean, Cook used to drive journalist mags. He was so talented, but he used to, you know, he, he, he did like, using the ball he didn't necessarily like getting rid of the ball so he drove people nuts but on his day he he was he he was brilliant i saw him i guess i saw him about a, a dozen times for chelsea in that time and then more a few more when he came back and he he would beat people he would cross to to osgood and, and, and to hutchinson i think particularly the cup winning team you know, the crosses that he and Peter Hausman put in for Osgood and Hutchinson were, you know, made, made such a difference to that team. And he was exciting. You know, he and George Best were probably the two most skillful players in English football at the time. It's interesting that neither of them were English. And certainly Ramsey would never have picked Charlie Cook. And Ramsey would have spent a long time trying to work out how not to pick George Best. But, um, he, you know, Cook was, when they bought him, um, no one knew much about him. And I think his first game was at West Ham when they were parading the World Cup and it was on match of the day and he scored a goal from 25 yards. And that was his first league game for Chelsea. Um, and, you know, he had these ups and downs. He got dropped. He got put in midfield. I don't think Sexton quite knew whether to play him wide or to play him in the middle. But he was, uh, you know, he was exciting. He was in, in a, in a grey world of English football when there were only four or five really skillful players in the, in the first division who, who would take people on and actually excite the crowd. Cook, Cook was one of them, and he was loved. He was loved by the crowd for that. And the other one I've chosen is a much underestimated man in Chelsea's history is David Webb. And I know people remember him for his goal in the, you know, won the FA Cup in 1970. But what people sometimes forget is that we bought him, we, we basically, we swapped him for Joe Kirkup. We got him from Southampton in early 68 because Sexton realised we needed a character at the back, a sort of um, a strong man, a, a positive character. He had Ron Harris, but Harris was slightly different. I mean, Webb was more like more like a pirate. He was so swashbuckling and he looked, you know, he looked the part. He, but, you know, he was so loyal to the club. He, he ended up playing in about nine different positions. He asked for a transfer a couple of times, but then... You know, in those days, m- most people did. But he was so loyal, he'd play anywhere. He played in goal. He played up front. When um, Hutchinson was injured in sort of 70, 71 season, Webb played up front quite quite a bit. There was even talk of him playing up front in the um, Cup Winners' Cup final at, uh, at one stage. And you know, he epitomised the spirit of the club because you had the, the Cooks and the Osgoods and the Hudsons, the skillful players. But they didn't, to be frank, didn't always turn up. You know, they would not always put in a shift. Webb always put in a shift, even when he was playing badly. And I think the crowd loved him for that. Obviously scoring 
winning Golden Cup final is going to cement your relationship with the support. But I, I just think if I look back, he and to an extent, Hollins, who was a different sort of player, but again was loyal. He was consistent. He was he was wholehearted. He didn't have the charisma of Webb because Webb was a, a, a you know a, a charismatic man. But I think without Webb, without the purchase of Webb, and a year later John Dempsey, Chelsea wouldn't have won the FA Cup or won in Europe because they just didn't have the the def, the, the defence. And I think if you go forward a few years, I think it's. More than more than the departure of Osgood or Hudson, it was the departure of Webb in summer '74 that was the death knell really for Chelsea. They lost a lot of the spirit went out of the, the club. Osgood and Hudson had, had fallen out, you know, irreparably with the, with, with the club. But for for sell Webb to uh, to QPR and not to pay him what, what he wanted because of the financial problems at the club. I think, you know, I know they got David Hay in, but Hay was supposed to play in midfield. And I think, to be honest, if Webb had stayed, Chelsea may well have stayed up. But, you know, it's hard to say. But he was, and I think, you know, in Chelsea's histories, the people, the names that people remember from those days are largely Osgood, Cook, Hudson, and maybe Ron Harris. But I would argue that Webb and uh, Hollins and, and Bonetti were all, probably just as important if not more so than the, than the first four uh, do you know that's absolutely bang on Tim I mean funnily enough uh, you know because I obviously read your your latest book and and, and I've had a very different perspective on David Webb and uh, I mean you know weirdly you know I, I've kind of always known about him you know but you're right you know he he didn't have the the kind of glamorous appeal of the likes of Hudson and and uh, Aussie, and perhaps the emotional hook that Peter Bonetti has for people, um, and yet I, I do think he, you know, he, he's he's underestimated in terms of his importance to Chelsea and his impact on them. And I mean, reading your book, what came through so clearly was his exasperation at what was going on, and that he was very, very loyal. But he, I, I think of all the players at that time. He he perhaps felt the most let down by what was going on, and it's actually yep. quite a. Tra- I mean, not that I'm tempting you, but you could almost do a book on David Webb's career about that. It, it yep. it's so emotional when you read it, and you you realise what he was going through because he could see what was happening, and he was exasperated well, by it. it the, the story goes that he turned up for training at Stamford Bridge, and he bumped into the Leicester manager, Jimmy Bloomfield, and said, "Oh, Jim, what are you doing here?" He said, oh, "I'm here to buy Keith Weller." <laughs> and he thought he was joking yeah. and stormed in to see Sexton and said, no, we're selling it. And Webb almost burst into tears and told the first journalist he saw, this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. yeah. And he was right. He was absolutely <laughs> he was, right, he wasn't he? Was absolutely right, yeah. No. You know, now, Chuck... he, he could see it. You know, he could see what was going to happen. And it did. Now, uh, turning to Charlie Cook, uh, you know, I... <laughs> It's really. I have a fascinating kind of perspective on Charlie Cook because I never really knew much about him until the latter end of his career for Chelsea, which of course was very different from the early career. And you, I think it's an interesting point you make that you know the only really skillful players in in the first division in the sixties at that time. Well, I mean, yeah, I think sixties. You know, Eddie Gray would be one, George Best obviously, and Charlie yeah. Cook, and uh, all of them not English, but particularly Charlie Cook and Eddie Gray. It's the it's the Tanner Dice ball, isn't it? 
you know, or the yeah. talent. Yeah, you know, when they basically used to play with a very, yeah, yeah, used to play with a very, very uh, tannable ton of dice, Freudian slip. Yeah, they used to play with a very, very small ball, and they had this amazing control, didn't they? Great dribblers. And Charlie Cook was that kind of player, but of course he was a bit, bit like, you know, very much part of the Aussie Hutch Baldwin uh, Hudson gang, wasn't he? So he was a bit of a drinker, but he kind of changed his game. He got, got uh, sold to Palace, didn't he? And then he came back. Yep. And he yeah. was much a reformed character. And, you know, we've just done the 76-77 um, the season with Mark Meehan last week on, on the main fan cast. And, and Cook kind of comes back as a, as a deep-lying midfield player to kind of slow the tempo of the game down. Uh, you know, uh, what a wonderful football player, basically. And again, I think, I mean, I know, I mean, you know, Martin Knight, for example, just absolutely adores Charlie Cook. And there are several other people I know of that kind of generation who absolutely eulogise this guy. And again, I think... For the younger generation, he's kind of gone under the radar a bit, hasn't he? He, he has. And uh, as I say, he, he was so different. You know, Arsenal didn't have anyone like him. Spurs didn't have anyone like him. West Ham didn't have anyone like him. They, you know, these, these were more functional teams. Liverpool didn't have anyone like him. You know, these were teams winning trophies. Eddie Gray was, was a great player, um, you know, as he, as he proved in the, uh, in the 1970 final. But he didn't have the difference with Cook is he'd take men on and take men on. Probably, and he would admit himself, um, that he, you know, he should have got rid of the ball earlier. The other thing about Cook, he was quite a complex character. One of his best friends, and I didn't realise this until after I'd written the book, was Hugh McElvenny, who was the observer foot main football writer and was probably the leading football mm. writer in, in, in the country in the uh, late sixties and early seventies. And, you know, they, they, were, they were big pals. And, you know, Cook did, um, Rick Glanville found a thing this week of an interview in Vogue magazine with Cook from the early 70s. And Cook would have profiles by Ray Connolly in the uh, in the Evening Standard, who, who, who was a showbiz writer. So I think Cook almost, because he played for a London, glamorous London team, and because he, he was interesting, and because he was very self-aware and self-critical, um, was far more interesting to, to serious journalists than the likes of Osgood or Charlie George or Martin Chivers or these people who might get the headlines in terms of goals, but compared with Cook, were, were, were fairly sort of shallow characters. And that's not to criticise them. Most footballers were. But Cook, Cook was different. He was, uh, and, you know, he, he used to go through go through agonies. You read interviews with him and he was like, I, I, I don't know whether I'm good enough i don't know whether this is what i should be doing and all this sort of stuff and, and no one else was doing interviews like that in 1969 you know mm, quite fascinating of course the great irony is that in the 70s suddenly england produces all these kind of maverick flair players like frank worthington stan bowles rodney marsh you name it and chelsea had nobody so you know, no. it's quite typical <laughs> isn't it um anyway we should move on to your favorite matches um I, for somebody who's been going for as long as you i, I, I was kind of expecting like a uh, uh, you know, a piece of paper the length of your, one of your books, but actually, you've been quite selective with what you've chosen. I have. Um, I mean, I've, I've gone for sort of half a dozen. Um, I, I, I think the seventy six seven season was the first season I went. I went regularly, uh, home and away. So I did, I don't know, twenty home games and twelve, fifteen ways, whatever. Um, my first away game was Forest away, which was on match of the day. And anyone who went and anyone who's 
seen the footage. It was chaos. There were pitch invasions. There was there, everything. People getting thrown in the river. The, the whole thing. <laughs> and and Forest were were up for promotion. You know, they were competing for promotion with Chelsea. It was you know big game. You move forward sort of five months, and we're at Wolves, um, who are who need a point for the title. We need a point to get promoted. And Forest are competing with Bolton for the third third place. So we get Wolves away. And we'd had problems at Charlton away a few weeks earlier and a couple of other places. So we get banned by uh, by the FA from Wolves. So anyway, Martin and I are on a train to Burnley um, a couple of weeks before. And this guy that I later understand to be Danny Harkins, but I didn't know this at the time, was coming through the train, train taking orders for Wolves away terrace tickets on the South Bank. And, and obviously he knew a lot of people and obviously people trusted him to do it and one of the people who bought them off him was Cliff Cliff Auger bought his ticket for Wolves Away from, from, from Danny and it, it, it all worked he got the ticket obviously he made a made a dollar doing it but a, a considerable number of the Chelsea fans who went got tickets from him we knew someone up there so we got tickets that way so week before Wolves Away we're in the Nelguin and half the pub is singing we're all pissed up and we're going to Molyneux and you realise that it's not just going to be a few of us going, it's going to be quite a lot. And then you turn up on the day and there's 7,000 Chelsea fans. And we're, you know, and te- they, the British Rail ran specials in the end because so many people turned up at Euston. It was, you know, and, and Chelsea got the draw and Chelsea got promoted. The footage on, of the game, highlights of the game are on uh, YouTube and I recommend people watch it. But given nine of that team were, were, had come through the youth system were, and were under 21... The club had no money. Eddie McCready was was manager. We'd been relegated two years before. We, we'd nearly gone bust. There were buckets collecting money to keep the club going as you left home games that season. Now, it really was hand-to-mouth. The players had taken pay cuts to keep the club going and they still managed to get promoted. It was just, you know, still makes me go misty-eyed 43 years later. Indeed. It's still it's still the same. That, that Eddie Mac night that uh, Mark Meehan and and Mark and Kelvin, Dave Johnson, Neil Smith all organised. It was one of the great Chelsea nights in terms of in terms of memories. You know, they were grown men in all because you know those guys got almost the whole squad to to uh, under the bridge, and it was just it was an astonishing night. And you know the the the, the emotion, the 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 pride in that team, the gratitude to those players and that manager, just fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think it's the best kind of non-football, uh, you know, night I've ever had at Chelsea. It was it was quite remarkable being there, wasn't it? I felt quite privileged to be there, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, it was. And and you know, and of course, everyone. Well, most people know the story that two months later, McCready found out that the Fulham managed uh, uh, Bobby Campbell had a better card than he did. Campbell hadn't been promoted. McCready went in sort of asked for a couple, so the story goes, asked Chairman Brian Mears. Anyway, there was a, whatever happened, McCready came over that room, no no longer Chelsea manager. Well, of course, that, that and, go on, sorry, Tim, go on. No, I was going to say, which, you know, was, was such a shock to us. I think everybody thought that this was going to be, you know, I'm not saying that Chelsea would have, were going to compete for the league or anything, having gone up, but I think people thought they might give it a go. And then for McCready to go, less than two months later was was soul destroying 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, number one, uh, you know, we had Mark Meehan on the show last week, and uh, uh, I tried to, to get him to reveal the real reason why Eddie Mack left. It wasn't the car, by the way, but he said, no, you have to go and read the book. So just a reminder to people, if you want to know yep. why Eddie Mack left, you have to go and read Mark and the other's book, Eddie Mack, Eddie Mack. Um, it's an interesting point, actually, because another thing we, we, we said the, uh, this week, funny enough, was that I, I kind of made that comparison with Forrest, and I wondered, had Eddie Mack stayed you know, we could have done what Forrest eventually did. You know, there's. I, I think what came came through from the book that they wrote was what a fantastic manager Eddie Mack was. I don't think yeah. I really realised quite what a skillful and thoughtful manager he was. I mean, for example, inventing Four Diamond 2, you know, ahead of his time in many respects. Yeah. Anyway, but, sorry, go on, Tim, you want to, want to comment no, on that? I was going to say, and, and, you know, it is ironic that Forrest, who only just got promoted because Bolton fell away, won the league and then won two European Cups, whereas mm. Chelsea... Had to sell Wilkins and Stanley and whatever you've got relegated, and you know it took till John Neal and Ken Bates brought the players in sort of six years later before we sort of found found our feet again. And uh, by by, sorry, go on, Tim. Which leads me towards indeed, my next game, indeed, which is Grimsby away in 1984. So again, Chelsea summer of '83, team full of underachievers. Um, nearly got relegated. John Neal and Ken, Ken Bates, and people criticise Bates, but to his credit, he found the money to buy Kerry Dixon, to buy Pat Nevin, to buy Nigel Spatman, Eddie Needs Vicky. He brought Speed, David Speedy in uh, a year earlier. And you, you come in with five new players, first game of the season, and you beat Derby County, who were favourites for, for promotion, let's not forget, and we beat them 5-0. And you suddenly thought, well, and then the season continued with lots of wows and you know going away with Chelsea I, I suspect there were on average considering we were in the second division as, as big an away support as we've ever taken was, was taken that season and it culminated we, we, we beat Leeds 5-0 to get promoted but it culminated in a trip to Grimsby which we had to win to guarantee the, the title last game of the season it was all ticket we had tickets and we went up on the special what transpired when we got there is they were letting people in who hadn't got tickets because the police wanted them off the streets. And I saw some, well, I think Mark Meehan and, and others will say that the, that end was as crowded as, as they'd ever been in. And they could easily have been a minor, a minor Hillsborough that day. And, you know, there were pitch invasions, but the pitch invasions were people trying to get away from the crush. The crush was terrible. Uh, we, we won. <coughs> And Kerry Dixon scored. We won. Fantastic. Special back to London, back into the pub on Fulham Road, leave the pub at closing time, just as the players' coach arrives on Fulham Road. They're all pissed. We're all pissed. Sing song in the middle of the Fulham Road at about 20 to 12 in the morning. With the players? With the, with, with the players, yeah. Some of the players. Um, but what, what was the whole thing? was the fact that we'd won the league. The previous season, we almost got relegated. Um, and they took a punt. They took a punt on bringing in all these new players from lower divisions, and they came off, and they came off spectacularly. You know, Kerry Dixon is a, a Chelsea legend, an overused word, but he, he is. Uh, Pat Nevin, I'll talk about later, but, you know, fantastic, fantastic player. Spatman did a, did a great job. And they all came in at the same time. And it could have gone horribly wrong. If it had gone horribly wrong, we'd have been East Ginter 
and we'd have probably been relegated. So it was a high risk, but fair play to Ken Bates. You know, it worked and it culminated in a day out at Grimsby. Fantastic. Uh, you've got another away match next uh, on the list, uh, this time uh, not in the UK. This is uh, uh, one of our first, well, our first foray into European football for, if my maths is correct, 22 years. Yeah, I mean, after the, um, we lost to a Wittenberg in 1971, who were part-time Swedish team, lost over two legs to them. Um, and, and everyone said, oh, we'll be back in Europe next year. And we didn't do it for another 22, 23 years. Yeah. So we get, we, um, 1994, despite not winning the cup final, we, we end up in the, the Cup Winners' Cup. First round was, I think, Victoria Ziskov in um, the Czech team. I didn't go away, but we went to home game. Second round was away in Vienna. And I think everybody... An enormous amount of Chelsea support went. I couldn't tell you the number. We went on um, a club trip. There were three club planes. There was a four-hour delay at uh, a gap where you can imagine what the plane was like by the time the people got on it. It was uh, it was rocking. Um, but that game is remembered. Chelsea needed, I think, I can't remember exactly what we needed, but we went one down and we needed to equalise to go through. And John Spencer... And again, this is on YouTube, ran 70 yards with the ball, literally 70 yards with the ball, and put it past the keeper. <coughs> one of the great Chelsea goals, and such an important one. Because it, you know, we've been nothing in terms of European football for nearly a quarter of a century. And, and by winning that, it put us through, it kept us in the competition until February when we played Bruges, and then we got Saragossa in the semi-final. But it, I think it opened people's eyes to the, the, the joy of a European aways. I know the, the diehards have gone to um, Ziskov, but thousands went to Vienna. And it was, you know, to be at that end, watching Spencer running away from us to score that goal was one of the one of the great moments. And it was, a, you know, there is something about European away trips in terms of the atmosphere, the togetherness of the supporters, that even you get even more than a domestic away game. So it was a, it was a great game and people still talk about it and they talk about it as much as anything because of Spencer's goal. Well, absolutely. He always, to me, looked like a kind of a terrier running with a football, you know, his little legs going like pistons. Uh, and it's funny you talk about, uh, you know, seeing uh, a Chelsea striker run the length of the pitch to score a goal in an important European away match and watching him because the same thing happened in 2012 and you were, I think, one of the most famous Chelsea away matches in Europe. Yeah, but yeah, Barcelona. Um, no one really gave us a chance. Um, Terry, as we know, got 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 sent off in in, in the first half, uh, <coughs> and then you know we were we were behind. Ramirez scored one, and you know we were under the cosh. I think Barcelona missed the penalty. They missed chance after chance. We were we had ten men, and then Torres, who was hot and cold, to be honest, as a as a Chelsea player. <laughs> Luke Warm, I think, might be. Luke Warm, yeah. But <laughs> well, he tried again, hard, bless him. He tried yeah. hard, Tim. Oh, yes, you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> fault his But he, he got the ball. And again, and everyone would have seen the footage, but he, he ran and he went round the keeper and scored. And that moment when we realised we were in the Champions League final. And, and you know, for anyone who's been to the new camp, the away end is very high. And the, the look down on it and the, the realisation we were through, the atmosphere... In the you know in the away end was was 
as good as I've, as I've known it. You know, you're always kept in at these places for 40 minutes or whatever. And normally that's a right pain in the neck. But no one cared about that because they knew that, you know, we were we were in the Champions League final. Of course, that that's what led to, to Munich. But I think that trip, we because we were so under the cosh, they'd, they'd scored two. They'd, we'd had, a, you know, Terry sent off and we were we were struggling. Just the, the spirit of the team, and that's the thing that really gets me. I think the spirit that it, it epitomized that team that they just refused to die. The easy thing to do would have been to have gone out and just said, Well, you know, down to 10 men against the, the best, supposedly the best team in Europe. And it was just a, just a great trip, a great day. And you know, I, I, I think for again, for those who went, it's, it's one of those games you'll never forget. I remember sitting with 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 Cliff and, and Paul Ovenden in a, in a bar in the Ramblers, and we were saying, you know, we we could get absolutely marmalised here. We could lose three or four nil. The, the years, you know, a decade earlier, whatever, we'd lost five one out there, and you know, when we were supposedly in with a chance. So it was tough, but and that's the enormous credit of, the, of those players that they they literally were never say die. You know? Yeah, they had a lot of belief, didn't they? And I, yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, Terry went off, but I think you know you've got to hand it to the likes of Drogba uh, and Lampard, particularly that night, who kind of pulled us through. Uh, you know, quite remarkable, remarkable, Matt. I, I mean, I, I don't have many regrets uh, when it comes to football, but I do regret not being there for that one. Uh, instead, I was in the Hand and Flower Pub, and I kept on. I was. I, I think it's one of the most tense matches I've ever watched, Tim, um, and. I, I kept storming out to have a fag because I couldn't bear it when Terry got sent off, for example. And I, yeah. and then I came back and I and I, I came back as Ramirez was... Uh, I don't, I'd gone out for another fag later on because I was pissed off about something else. But I kind of wandered back in just after Ramirez had scored. So I walked into a li- literally a beer shower. So, <laughs> but it was an emotional night. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you've also mentioned uh, the, the Baku trip, which weirdly, I think today's the, the anniversary of it, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. But that was... That was the whole trip. It wasn't just the game because um, once it was clear that flights to Baku were, to put it mildly, expensive and, and hard to find, um, I it was allowed Darren Marks sort of put on Twitter, oh, does anyone fancy a minibus to, um, from Tbilisi to Baku? And I thought, well, this is obviously completely bonkers. Then I looked at it and realised, in fact, although it was bonkers, it was doable. It was 10 hours, you had to cross the border. So I put up on, does anyone fancy it? We filled a, um, a bus with, with 10 supporters. And, and you know, so we flew on the Monday night from Gatwick to Tbilisi, got a minibus in the day on the Tuesday, stayed overnight on the Tuesday night. I was with Chris Rayburn and, uh, and John Hand. And then we just sort of had a few drinks in the afternoon of the game. And the, the game itself was, was was weird because again people would have seen it on TV because there were there were only a few thousand Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans. There were all these locals. There were there were locals wearing Liverpool shirts sitting in our section, and, and it was all very strange. But because of the the nature of the trip and the sort of effort we'd made to get there, and the fact that Eden Hazard decided. Well, appeared to decide at half time that if he was, it was going to be his last game in the Chelsea shirt, he was going to make it a good one. Arsenal got absolutely 
absolutely destroyed in, in, in the second half. So I think it was a, you know, I, I, I don't know how many Chelsea fans went from London, maybe, maybe a couple of thousand. And, you know, people who do every game couldn't afford it or, or, or couldn't get the time off work. I'm lucky in that because I'm retired, time's not the issue. And because of the way we did the trip, it wasn't actually that expensive, but it did take did take most of the week. But one of the most one of the best bits, I left quite quickly afterwards because I had a flight at seven o'clock the following morning to uh, back to Tbilisi. So I, I'm walking back to my hotel and I see a bar that's open, and there's Arsenal fans in there, and they're not, you know, they're just sort of not. They, they were just demoralised. I think is a good word. So I went in and just had a quiet pint, sat in the corner, listening to all these Arsenal fans deconstructing their defence, deconstructing Emery, and not happy at all. And we come all this way and blah, 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 and players don't care and all this. And it was great. And then I just sort of, you know, went to bed and I'd, I had to change twice. So I had three flights home and then I had to get a cab from Stansted because my the train broke down. So it was a bit of a trip, but... Uh, and it was obviously a nonsense that the game was ever played there. And you know, but to be fair, you know, we got the supports trust got quite a lot of traction along with the Arsenal supports trust in, in, in the media on that. But obviously UEFA don't care, they didn't no. care. <coughs> Nobody cared, TV didn't care. So, you know, and it was it was a nonsense. But that I you know, a year ago at this moment, I was sitting having a cup of coffee on the seafront in uh, in Baku, yeah. JK. Yes, Chich. You know how frustrated we get when we can't get a ticket to an away match and it's not on the telly? Oh, yes. Oh. Well, I think I found the answer. You have? I have. It's NordVPN, and it allows us to watch any match, even if it's not on live TV here. Oh, that sounds great. How do they do that? Well, with just one click, they switch your virtual location to a country which is showing the match. Oh, isn't that a bit risky, though? I wouldn't want people getting their hands on my personal details. No problem, JK. NordVPN acts as your cyber bodyguard whilst online, protecting your personal data and sensitive info like card details and passwords. Oh, wow, great, but uh, I bet that'll cost me a fortune. Actually, JK, it's only the price of a cup of coffee per month, and you can use your account across six devices. It's a bargain, mate. Oh, indeed it is, Chidge. Where do I sign up? To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com forward slash Chelsea Fancast. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee and you'll help support the Chelsea Fancast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Brilliant. I, I, I love the comment about being in a pub full of Arsenal fans and uh, just listening to them, you know, yeah. just deconstruct. I, I did that with Pablo, not in a, in a glamorous place like Baku, but you know the the Capital One Cup match we... Uh, we took about nine, ten thousand, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. And we took the yeah. whole place over, and they were yeah. very, very grumpy about it. In fact, it's not been allowed to happen again. No. And, and Pablo yeah. and I went back to a, a pub because I used to, I used to work. Uh, I think at the time I was working literally two minutes away from the Emirates Stadium, so I knew all the pubs around there. So Pablo and I, on the way back, went to a pub in Liverpool Road, 
you know, incognito, obviously. Yeah. And it was full of Arsenal fans, absolutely just apoplectic about the fact that so many Chelsea fans had turned out, turned up and they were a disgrace and all the rest of it. Pablo and I just sat there chuckling away, sipping our beer. It was a lovely moment. Um, talking yeah. of lovely moments, Tim, what's your best moment as a Chelsea supporter? I, I think it has to be winning the league at Bolton. Because um, in those days, now I'm lucky I've got an away season ticket. In those days, you just wrote to the club however many months before, sent them a, a cheque, and as long as you were season ticket holders, you could get tickets for games towards the end of the season. <coughs> so in September, we sent a cheque for the four of us for, for tickets for Bolton because we thought that it might be the game where we, we clinched the league. And, you know, it all came good. The tickets arrived. It was the game where we could clinch the league. So uh, just a brilliant... That, so it was brilliant to be able to go. Um, I think everyone knew we were going to win the league, but it, it was whether we won it that day. And, you know, I think when Lampard's second goal went in, the relief, they were, they were grown men in tears. There were people I'd never never met or never spoken to before since you were dancing, hugging with. You know, my, my son, who was 14 then, 13, 14 then. And even he realised the sort of enormity of the uh, thing because he, he, he was up there. And it, and afterwards, we probably stupidly left the car park quite quickly and sort of drove back to my, my friend's house. But people hung around. And I've seen film of Chelsea fans serenading the coach and you know, blocking the car park and everything. And I think particularly for people who've been going a long time and have been through all the bad days, yeah, the seventies and the early eighties. It was just, it was almost like redemption. I think there was a, a game probably a month, six weeks before that, when we won at Southampton, and the singing at, at Southampton at half time was of you know, blokes older than me bellowing about we're going to win the league, and we just singing it and singing it and singing it, and you could see what it meant. It went, you know, because. We hadn't won the league since 1955. We'd not even been close to it, apart from a couple of occasions. Um, and to suddenly have the best team in England, the best manager in England, and some of the best players in England, and it all coming together, that was the point. It all came together again. It, you know, Mourinho, he came in. We, we had some players. He brought other players in. It might not have worked, but it worked, and it worked superbly. And I think, as I say, everyone knew we were going to win the league. Um, but to win it in that way on that day and to be there, I just think, I, I remember now leaving the ground and I was nearly in tears and there was a guy, I don't know his name, I see him at away games and he was he was weeping, sobbing, because he just, it just meant so much to him, you know. It's a, it just shows you, doesn't it, how... Um... How powerful football is, and and, and what yep. it actually means to people. I mean, I, I don't. As I said, I, I don't have many regrets. I kind of regret not being at Bolton. Obviously, I mean, there are two things I never thought I'd see in my lifetime as a Chelsea supporter. One was us winning the league, and the other was us winning the Champions League or the European Cup, as I yeah. prefer to call it. Um, I, I have to say, in, in in hindsight, I had such a great time after we'd won it up at Bolton I mean I watched it in a pub in Pimlico on my own absolutely just I'm, ter- I'm a terrible watcher of football Tim as you know yeah um I, I so me being alone in a padded cell is probably the most appropriate place really but I was in this pub on my own in, in Pimlico but the minute the final whistle went my phone was buzzing 
uh, with all my mob, you know, who subsequently, many of whom became part of the Chelsea fan cars, funnily enough, all saying, where are you? Where are you? We got to meet up. We got to meet up. We all, we're all heading to Fulham Road. And uh, we headed there, and uh, as did 3,000 other Chelsea supporters. And basically, yeah. the, the road got closed. We got absolutely hammered, went off for a curry, ended up in the Imperial Arms. And I ended up dancing with uh, Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, bizarrely, oh, yeah. which I think got mentioned. Just, at, sorry, go on. I was going to say, the thing about the game was it was a half-five kickoff, so it finished for half seven. Yeah. So, of course, you could be in Fulham Road from Pimlico. By quarter past eight, it wasn't like you had to rush for last orders or anything. No, no, no. I was there. I'd got a taxi. <laughs> I didn't right. hang about. <laughs> but it was a great moment. That kind of in a weird... So, you know, I I, I really regret not being there for the game because that would have just been out, out, outstanding. But, you know, it was great. I mean, that that is, you know, like you have a memory of being there, which is which is fantastic. I've, I feel I've got a memory of, of, of being in the Fulham Road and ce- celebrating with people. It was a special, special moment. Uh, um, but of course, you know, being Chelsea, we have to have a downside as well, Tim, don't we? So, what was your worst moment? Well, it would have to be Moscow, I think, um, because you know we were a penalty away from winning. Um, but you know, we'd gone on a day trip. We'd flown out of Stansted at four in the morning. Got there at lunchtime. Places weren't open in the afternoon. It's hard to find anywhere to eat or drink. Got in the ground far too early, nothing to do. Um, it was raining. We, you know, we nearly won the game. We lost it. It was pouring with rain when we left. Um, completely demoralised, having thought we were going to win, completely demoralised. They'd moved the coach part without telling us to ages to find the coaches, get on the coaches, they don't move. Then when they move, they don't, they don't go close to the airport, they just stop. Someone kicks open the emergency door on our coach and everyone runs to the airport. And then you have a five-hour wait for a, a flight back. So, I mean, the game, it was, it was it was mortifying. I mean, I think Munich sort of made up for it in many ways, but the game was mortifying. But the whole thing, to be exhausted, soaking wet, stuck in an airport, the, the you know, Thomas Cook, just lost, didn't have the staff there. The Russians were just messing about. They were half empty planes leaving. They were, I mean, we got out, uh, I don't know, after being there, it must have been seven in the morning, Moscow time or something. There were still thousands of people behind us. And it was just, just rank bad organisation. But it, it just sort of summed up, summed up the day. I mean, if we'd won, no one would have given a toss. If we'd won, you know, and you get delayed, so what? But to have lost like that, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I went, but I do, I do think that that was probably as as dispirited as I've ever been um, at a Chelsea game. And it's hard to see. I guess the other one would be the Middlesbrough game for the playoff game in 1988, which was actually, the anniversary was yesterday. Yeah. When we got, we got, we, we, you know, we were two down from the first game. We got relegated. There was a pitch invasion, and that was crap. But you know, it, it was it wasn't as bad as being sort of in in as in, in a hospitable place as Moscow, you know, and, and, and losing. And the, the great thing about the '88 one was, you know, we got promoted and won the league by by a country mile the following season. Mm. And at least with um, with Moscow, it took four years, but we did, we did win it. We are the only London team to 
to have won it. We're the only London team, I suspect, in my lifetime that will, will win it because it's hard to see you know, Spurs and Arsenal the way they are at the moment turning that round. So, yeah, I mean, out, you have to suffer the bad times, I think. And I know this is a cliche, but I think it's probably true. If you suffer the bad times, you'll enjoy the good times more. So, you know, that's football, I guess. Absolutely right. And I think there's a weird, <coughs> excuse me, a weird, weird parallel <coughs> with Moscow, you know, losing to Man United in the uh, 94 Cup final, uh, pouring rain, just horrible. Uh, and then three years later, winning the FA Cup for the first time in, you know, 27 years. And then uh, again in Moscow, losing to Man United, horrible. You know, I thought we were actually the better side that day, to be fair, but very unlucky not to win it. Pouring rain. And then, you know, four years later, we, we win it in Munich. So there's a reason for these things, I suspect. But anyway, um, time to look at your kind of favourite modern stroke current players, Tim. Well, I think in the, in the past decade, it would be Eden Hazard. I think he, you know, with the six years, whatever, he was one of the very best players in the Premiership. He did it consistently for Chelsea, he did it in big games. He did it in not such big games. And I think what people forget about him is that, you know, he was a marked man from the defender's point of view. He's obviously Chelsea's best player. But I think that he delivered, most weeks he delivered. He he, he scored goals. He made goals. He, he made things happen. He scored great goals. And, you know, as I said, said earlier, the, his final game, to destroy Arsenal out in Baku, I think sort of sort of summed him up. And I've, you know, as I say, I've always liked flair players, people who can beat people. That goal he got against Arsenal, fantastic, slaloming his way through the statuesque Arsenal defence. You know, um, there's not many players in English football can do that. Certainly not not as consistently as he did. So I think it would be him. Um, and in the previous decade, I've gone for. Iron Robin and Damien Duff, simply because, as I say, I've always had a thing for width and flair and pace. And I think Robin's pace and Duff's pace and tri their trickery, their crosses, their goal scoring, you know, the fact that they, you know, they're Drogba as, as, as a target man. I just think that was a great team. And they, they were they were so exciting to watch. And it, at the end of the day, football, you know, it, it's more than just entertainment, but it should be entertainment as well. And the thing about Cook and Hazard, and Robin and Duff is that they entertain the people, and you know, and we won things. So to to have Robin and Duff in in the league winning side, like having Hazard inside that won, you know, won trophies is it's the icing on the cake if you like. But I, they're, they're players you'll remember, and this is no criticism of more functional players, but what gets you off on the edge of your seat is 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 people beating players, people putting crosses in, people shooting distance and Hazard and Robin and Duff could do that and that's why you know I, I I admired them then and I admire them now can't I can't believe you haven't found a place for Phil Driver in all of that well Phil Driver was actually a good player he yeah, was yeah, actually he, to be fair player, but no, I mean we, we had over the years we've had quite a few wingers that have sort of come in and, and, and um, I'm flattered to deceive a bit but you know the fact that Sexton bought Steve Kember and pushed Hudson out on the wing says quite a lot about, you know, the way that the wing was, was treated and he sold Cook and, and what have you. But 
you know, we, we've been lucky that we have had players like that. And I know other top teams have had uh, players like that. But, you know, Hazard did it for us for, what, six, seven years? Fantastic yeah. player. Fantastic. I- I can't I can't disagree with that at all. I think, you know, I think Hazard will go down. Uh, well, I mean, one hopes, as, as one always does, that we'll get somebody that's even more talented in the future. But I think he'll go down as the most talented player we've ever had. You know, just the, his, his innate skill is the best I've yeah. seen at the club, without yeah. a doubt. Remember, OK, you know, I'm too young to have seen Aussie at his peak and Charlie Cook, but... Uh, Certainly in my lifetime or my lifetime of watching Chelsea, he's the most talented player I've ever seen at the club because he could do things that nobody else can do. Even Zola. I mean, he's, and I thought yeah. Zola was was phenomenal. He was the, it's, Zola was the best player I'd seen until Hazard turned up. So fair. Yeah. fair yeah. And, and, he, and you're right. He, he, he stuck it out. Seven years and all those trophies, you know, that's a good crack of the whip, I think. And he, he deserves yeah. a lot of uh, respect for that as well. Um, now, talking of respect, uh, and I'm, I'm quite astonished that I didn't, didn't uh, include... This man, as my, I might have done actually. I, I, I know that I uh, Kerry and Ray, Kerry Dixon and Ray Wilkins were my all-time Chelsea heroes. But I have to say, it was a, it was a toss-up uh, that I could have included your, your all-time hero. Yeah, I mean, I've chosen Pat Nevin, and I've chosen him for a number of reasons. I mean, he was a great player. He was a his what he did when he came to the club, beating players. We hadn't had someone like that for years, his, his, his control, his trickery, his crossing, his passing, his awareness of the game, the chances he set up for uh, Dixon and for David Speedy. Yeah, he, he he came in and he, he looked at him and he was like, he looked like a member of a Scottish indie band. He could have been a member of Orange Juice or somebody. Um, and you know, those are the sort of the people the music that he liked. So he came into a team where, you know, in the programme it'd be favourite music line, Richie, favourite food, steak and chips, favourite drink, Lambrusco. And you have a bloke who suddenly, his favourite group's are cocktail swings. His favourite food is probably, I don't know, you know vegetarian curry and, and, and he, he was probably teetotal. Um, I mean, the other thing about him was he was more than just, um, more than just football. We went to see the cocktail twins, Victoria, in Christmas 84. And there was some problem with the sound and we all got, it, it finished early and Nevin was outside because it was the sort of gig he'd go to and he was just chatting and he you know very happy people recognized him he was very happy to talk about to talk about music he had a broader broader view on life and he did a, a night at um, Nick Tilt's pub Duke of Edinburgh in, uh, in Ascot a few years back and at the interval um you know, he was there talking about Chelsea and, and he was brilliant because he, he spoke without nuts and he notes and he was brilliant. But at the interval, he he was there and I happened to be next to him in the queue. And I started talking to him about that Cocteau Twins gig and he remembered it. And he's he started talking about music that Robin Guthrie from the Cocteaus was still doing now. And he was started talking about indie bands and, you know, he still loves his music. He still DJs, I think. You know, he, he, he was an idiosyncratic man in... It was a fairly easy, syncretic team. We were, you know, slightly unusual team. But he was the the key man. He was a great player. He was a great man. He he, he wouldn't have any truck with the, the sort of the, the racism that was going on. He supported, you know, Paul Cabot. He was very, very clear. Um, and he just lived his life. He lived, he wasn't, I mean, he, what, what the likes of, um, you know, I know he did, famously didn't get on with David Speedy. Well, Speedy was, you know, 
cut from a different cloth, shall we say. So some bloke coming in wearing a beret and a long sort of long overcoat to training would have, you know, I mean, imagine Speedy probably turned up in a bomber jacket and jeans. Probably they, you know, they, and their musical taste probably didn't collide. But he was, I think, you know, Dixon was, was popular. There were a number of popular players, but I think Nevin is the one. If you spoke to people who watched that team regularly, I think most of them would say, more of them would say about Nevin being a favourite. And I just think he was a great player. We, we sold him too soon. Um, it's a shame. We get all these legends, inverted commas, coming back to the club. I'm slightly surprised Chelsea, I know he does stuff on Chelsea TV, but he's an intelligent man. He's an engaging man. And, you know, compared with some of the people that have found their way back to the club, I maybe he wouldn't want to do it. I guess he lives in Scotland. He does his five live stuff. He's probably pretty content with life. But, you know, he would have been great to have had him more involved. I think that day, those days are probably gone. But, you know, he, because he, he was, a, when he first arrived at Chelsea, he didn't didn't start the season. I think he was still doing his exams or something. You know, he, was, he wasn't, he wasn't your typical footballer. But he was a, there was a game against Newcastle. Yeah. When he just destroyed Newcastle in 80, 83, 4. And people thought, wow, you know, this guy, we hadn't seen anything like it. I, I think his first game might have been at Gillingham. I didn't go there. And people were going, wow. And then you, and you just saw this guy taking people on, but he wasn't just doing it. I mean, Cook sometimes did it almost for his own sake. He beat men twice, but Nevin, there was always a purpose. He was trying to beat them to find space, to play the ball, just to, to Kerry Dixon or, or David Speedy or put across or have a shot. And I know, He's partly remembered for the worst penalty in uh, English football <laughs> history, <laughs> and it is. And I was there, and it was, was shocking. But um, you know, he's, he's remembered for so much more, and he's remembered with so much affection. And we played at Norwich the other year, was it in the cup? Anyway, I was on the train back, and he happened to sit down opposite me, and you know, he was chatting about the game, and and, and eventually the whole carriage was around the sort of. Eating, eating his every word. He was very happy to engage, very happy to talk about football then, football now. And, you know, he's just a nice man, decent man, intelligent man, great player. So he's, he would be my all-time hero. Uh, what a brilliant choice. And I, I now feel totally crap about not having him as mine because he... he, he, he... I mean, I love this. I mean, you know, as you know, you, you and I got similar taste in music to a degree and... Uh, I was very into the same music as Pat, and I loved him. That's the time I started really kind of going properly to Chelsea. So he was a, he was a hero then. Although you see, Kerry kind of just got it. I, I think I was clouded by the fact I've got to know Kerry really well, and you know maybe that's what swung it. But uh, I I have to say, you know, one of my I, sh- I should have done this in mind. One of my best moments as a Chelsea fan was when we had Pat uh, as the guest at a, a supporters trust meeting, and and I got to kind of. I was the yep. chair at the time, so I got to ask all the questions. And I, I, I can't, I, I'm just so chuffed that the first question I got to ask him was whether he liked Joy Division best or, or Cocteau Twins, which I thought was the <laughs> most appropriate thing to say to Pat Nevin. And he got that, bless his heart, I think. Yeah. He's an absolute gent. And by the way, he is he is at the club a lot, actually. Um, you know, when, when I mean, obviously, depending on his BBC commitments, but when he is there, he's always in the Copthorn talking to all the old players. So he's okay. very, yeah, he's, he's still very much part of the fabric. <laughs> Now, um, talking of music, Tim, uh, Chelsea have got, I think, an absolutely brilliant uh, song list. Uh, I think unrivaled, actually, but then I'm biased. Uh, and, of course, you've, you've been listening to them for much longer than me. So what are some of your favourite ones? Well, I think um, it's, it's the 
the ones you often remember are the ones when you were young. So some of them aren't even Chelsea songs, but I think the um, the distant drums song, I, you know, the, I hit, I smell the smell of distant bums over there, over there. <laughs> um, when you're ten or eleven, that is just just hilarious, you know. And it's like cause it's rude, and you could hear it on Match of the Day. Um, and you know, I, I like there's there's, there's um, the ones about individual players. See, if you watch old Match of the Days, you'll get like. You know, Peter Benetti, Peter Benetti, Bobby, Bobby Tambling, and all this. And I think that was great that you you got that, and most of the team got that. I, I do I do like the um, the Osgood song. Um, the, you know, that him Pat Jennings scoring past Pat Jennings or whatever. I do like the Tommy Baldwin one, which I think is brilliant because Baldwin was never one of our greatest players. He was a hard working player, but to have people still singing his name is Tommy Baldwin. He's the leader of the team. You know, from a man who left the club 45 years ago, it's, it's, it's fantastic. But my favourite is, and I won't swear, I just beep them all. You know, yes. Because it, it goes from, it's the mid-late 60s, it, um, it insults United, West Ham and Liverpool, who were... And Millwall. Three of them, and Millwall. But that, I think the Millwall bit came later. But United, West Ham, Liverpool... They were teams that were winning trophies in the mid-60s. They all, in fact, won trophies in um, 1965. I did talk to someone who went in those days. He thought the song dated a bit later, and it wasn't particularly about the teams that won trophies that season. Um, But, you know, it's powerful, it's tribal, it's loud, it's rude, and it's everything good songs should be. And I remember it being sung in the late 60s. And It's funny enough, the game I remember it being sung at is the Wimbledon semi-final in 97 when for some reason it took off in our end and it was belted out you know I think we were about to make our first you know okay we'd been in the cup final three years earlier but you know we we were likely to be favourites for this one Um, and it it was a sunny day and everyone was in a good mood and we were beating Wimbledon comfortably and that echoed out and you know I'm sure I've spoken to people who were when the shed in the 60s and that was one of those songs that sort of just just stood out i think one or two other clubs may have sung it i'm i'm pretty sure it emanated from from chelsea talking to uh talking to one or two people so that would be my my favorite i i i'm not a great fan of um the uh we hate tottenham in the liquidator uh, no i think it's sure sets them up as something that they're not um, and fine if we're playing against them, but I really, I really don't like that. I do like um, when when new songs come in. I think the the, the Williams song, and I know that Walter and Andy Smith had a had a part to play in the um, in writing that one. Um, so I like that. But what I do like is the mythology about Mick Greenaway and Cliff Webb and others writing songs uh, in the sixties and sort of handing song sheets around in the shed. And I used to think this story was bollocks, but I spoke to enough people who said, no, it's not, that you realise it's actually true. And some of the songs would have caught on and some of them wouldn't. But there, there has been a history of um, at Chelsea since at least, I would say, 64, 65 of, of, of songs being written. And I know, you know, other clubs have, w- would have the same. But and you know that's the great thing about Mark Mark Worrell and uh, Walter Otten's book Carefree is it does capture a lot of these songs and I for those who haven't read it I would recommend it you'll learn a lot about supporter culture and you'll learn a lot about songs 
that you would have either forgotten or would, weren't around to, to hear at the time. So I think that they are such an important part of, of football. And I think, you know, without banging a gong, I've been banging for about two months, playing games behind closed doors with no stone or with, with Tannoy's blasting out something, it's not the same. It's no. not football as we know it. You know? it, no, it's not indeed. And I, I think you've hit the nail on, on the head there, Tim. Powerful, tribal and rude, uh, as the good songs often are. But I think you can you can attribute that to football as well. And it, and it certainly won't be anything like that if uh, fans are not in the stadium. And, and I fear that, as you know, and I, I know you share this view, that it's the thin end of the wedge because I think yep. they, they want it as a TV game, not a spectator game. We're an inconvenience. And I mean, I know, having worked in film and TV for many, many years, that it's perfectly feasible for them to actually CGI in crowds and pipe yep. the chance through and provide the atmosphere that they're so desperate for without actually having us there. And I can see that happening in the future. Basically, I think, you know, football as we know it is gone. It's going to be like FIFA 20. But, you know, played for yep. real. That's that, that. They'd be happy with that. And I, I sadly, I think... Uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know there are a lot of supporters out there. I hesitate to say match going supporters, but I think a lot of people who like football will, will be happy with that because they've grown up with things like FIFA. So for them, yeah. it's perfectly natural. And I'm not deriding them for it. I, I appreciate the difference, but it's not really what I want, and I know it's not what you want. Um, that said, I think Tim, you've been brilliant today. I mean, how just such, such an engaging chat about your your time as a Chelsea supporter. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody who listens to uh, it will as well. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. It's the 90th minute. All your mates around. You've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.